0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawlik.
1: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National Recording Live here at the Real Estate Forum. Our guest today is Tony Rossi, who is the president of real estate at Infrastructure Ontario. Thanks for coming on, Tony.
0: No problem. Thanks for having me.
1: This I is should, fun. I should also say I'm Aaron and this is Adam, but I'm getting bored of introducing ourselves, so we'll just <laughs> keep going. Tony, you know, we always start these podcasts with a question about how you got into real estate why real estate, what your story is to leading up to where you are today.
0: Sure. So I'm probably one that hasn't taken the traditional path of going through business school and getting into real estate in that traditional form. I actually have a background in science and kinesiology, so... I spend a lot of my early days in the sport world and in the science world. But to make some money uh, between university, I actually got, you know, one of the job fairs and found a little posting that said apply here. I'd always done the camp counselor things and the summer jobs that had uh, people in leadership oriented. And I thought it's time to get an office job uh, and get some money. So there was a posting for an assistant, a receptionist in the summer to be at a brokerage house, a residential brokerage house. And I happened to be quite lucky in that at the time, the individual that was running that brokerage house, it was a small family run. It's called Oxford. Ironically, I ended up working at Oxford in the, in, on the commercial side, but my early first job was at Oxford Real Estate, which is a residential real estate brokerage firm. And Michael Kavlik also happened to be the president of TREB at the time. So I learned a fair bit starting in, you know, kind of a reception role. I was actually doing all the purchase and sale agreements. I was starting to get the tours of houses, figuring out who needed to be with whom, helping the agents work their magic. And the principal, Laddie, you know, one day he kind of came over and he goes, my dear, you're going to be in real estate. And I looked at him with horns on his head, you know, no, I don't think so. I'm a science person. I've got a sport background. I'm actually going to either get into sports med or sports administration, but uh, definitely not on the real estate side. This is just a summer gig. Well, he was kind of right. (laughs) So I, I, in fact, when I graduated from university at uh, U of T, I, my first real job was at the Science Center because they had an exhibition called the Sport Show back in the day in the 88, just before the Olympics. So in Calgary. So I started at the Science Center. I worked on helping some of those designs and the exhibits that were related to sport. I actually was the event coordinator and made sure that all the athletes came in. And we had really, really important topics to be talking about from a science perspective. And from there, one of the individuals that was there was working, was a roommate of a very good friend of mine and was working at Cadillac Fairview. And they happened to need an individual to run Fantasy Fair. So if you're familiar with Woodbine Center back in the day, there was an amusement park at uh, that Cadillac Fairview owned. It was owned by King's Entertainment Company at the time, which is Wonderland, and they were just getting out of that deal and needed a new park manager to bring it into Cadillac and to run the park. So here I went. I, I was supposed to be traveling around Australia with my Nike running shoes and my, you know, my little aerobics tapes, and I was going to do the tour of the world, but instead. I got this job, went on a whim for this job interview to run an amusement amusement park park (laughs) in a a shopping mall for Cadillac Fairview, which is, you know, arguably one of the larger owners and operators of real estate at the time. So my first day, I'll never forget it because I hadn't started yet. So my first day was the national conference and uh, we went to this national conference at Talisman and I was, you know, a young little kid and having some fun meeting all kinds of new people. I didn't know who was who. I'm starting June 1. This is in May. You know, start to get through. The big picture was coming. And I was stepping all over the toes of some gentleman and, you know, apologizing profusely. I'm so sorry, sir. I'm brand new here. I just started at Fantasy Fair. This is the best job ever. And I to be the president of the company. So Jim Bullock, uh, for those that are... You, you know, did that on purpose. I, I Who knew? Like, who <laughs> knew that Jim Bullock was getting his toes crushed by me? But it really kind of, to me, the Fantasy Fair role was... An incredible role because it had over 160 people in that small organization of a park. It actually embodied retail and real estate to the fullest. It showcased what you needed to do to actually get various deals and partnerships done. We did, it was a merger and acquisition or a demerger. In fact, it was a sale to or sale back to Cadillac to bring it in. And then it was running an operating company within a company, within a larger corporation. So, I always look back at that first job and think, it's amazing what I'm doing today, but I always look back at what I did there and very similar types of thought processes. What is the space really about? What is the project that needs to be done? How much capital can we spend? We only have a certain small amount of money. We've got a huge number of people. We have to bring people into the location safety? How do these kids engage? What are we going to do to make their parents spend more money? How do we get them back in the mall? Oh, and by the way, while we're doing that, let's make, how do we grow this business? How much, where do we get the revenue line? So from a very small little amusement park within a shopping center, within a larger organization, I really, it's funny because you cut your teeth on those elements. And frankly, most of the work that was done at that time you know, deals are so important and the ability to actually negotiate and do the deal is important. But actually the leadership that it takes to engage with people and to build the trust with individuals and to lead a group of people that then execute on whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I think I, I learned a lot of that at that time because it was a combination of unionized individuals, part-timers, uh, full-timers that have been there forever. And, you know, everyone, <laughs> you know, now that I'm doing lots of work with Infrastructure Ontario and most of our clients, have been in a traditional role and only they do certain things and then the next thing and the next thing. You know, I learned that the individual that, was at the bumper boats for eight hours a day and not very happy when the next kid was coming up. You know, maybe if we rotated the bumper boats to the Ferris wheel and then they looked at the JMB train or whatever, you start to engage people. And oh, by the way, by doing that, you're cross-pollinating and you're in fact looking at the cost side of it and, and your ability to have engaged individuals doing more, wanting to stay.
1: It's usually got thrown to the deep end here. It was
0: fun. So that was my start. That's wow. the start of real estate. And then through that, I uh, progressed through Cadillac Fairview. Obviously, I love, the organization, spent a lot of time in the retail side, uh, running shopping malls, and then without, at, without,
1: the, without parks, the parks.
0: Yeah. yeah, no, after that, we were into real shopping malls and, you know, and the, and the real issues. And you know, at the time, I think most people, last number of years, we haven't really, although we talk about going through a recession, we haven't really gone through a real recession where the Calgary today, arguably in Alberta right now, they're, they're really struggling and there's certain pockets in, in Canada that might be, but Not to the extent that we had in the 90s. And uh, at that time, there was many, many, many large Canadian and American real estate companies that went under Mm -hmm. and large retailers that did the same thing. So I also learned early in my career how you need to morph, constrain, help, find ways to get through. You know, we were on the verge, as many uh, will remember, Cadillac Fairview was like others, Marathon uh, O&Y and others went through CCAA. So we were on the verge of bankruptcy. Judge Farley came in, found ways to make sure we showcased what we could do to keep payroll going, to keep the company alive. Uh, at the time, obviously, everybody had totally leveraged and then uh, their debt. So you learn a lesson. And the industry has gotten much more cautious and risk-adverse, but you do learn the lesson, and we did it well. But we did go through the CCAA process. Venture capitalists came on board. You know, Fast forward, we had a new president and CEO who was from Goldman Sachs. Bruce Duncan learned, we learned a ton from Bruce, went on the public market. So here's a sleepy, not a sleepy, but an amazing company that was doing well, uh, very large, went through some very difficult times from a bankruptcy perspective, got through, got a venture capitalist, and then got another head of an organization that took Cadillac Public again, so we started with almost not existing to getting listed on the Toronto Stock Market and the New York Stock Exchange, which at the time was unheard of, really, for most uh, large organizations to do that. And then stocks got purchased by Ontario, uh, the Teachers Pension Fund, and uh, one of the key roles that I did was Ontario. Although they purchased the Cadillac stocks, they actually kept three malls to themselves, so they they were the direct owners. So it was my first foray into working directly for the owner, not just the the owner through an asset management company. So versus the landlord owner, right? So up until then, I was always the part of the ownership model and part of the property piece. And after that, uh, we we spent a fair bit of time with Antria. So I understood pensions, started to understand what the pension funds needed to do, why they were investing in real estate, hedging their bets, their investment portfolio. But it was very interesting how how their fingers were quite in on the three properties that they owned themselves. So they visited a lot there. You know, I was at Hillcrest at the time and their, their office was three or four blocks away. So uh, I certainly had the pleasure of meeting with, uh, with individuals from Montreal quite a bit. So learned a lot about service, right. Mm-hmm. And how you make sure that you are dealing with that client because they, it's their money and they want their money to grow. How are we going to continually grow that asset? What else can we do to to make their investment grow more? So fast forward, I went, I did a number of different roles at Cadillac, which my, the last role I did there was at TD Center. So one of the first, still am the first and uh, only female that has run that complex, four and a half million square feet, landmark place. It was an absolute honor. Like If if you think about the TD Center and what it represents, both for our city and, and the province, but also for the country, it's the capital of most of the equity that is going through the big banks. But the best story of the TD Center was we had its 40th anniversary while I was there. And Bregman Bregman and Hammond were the designers. And we were interviewing him. We asked him a little bit about, you know, what it was like to work with Mies van der Rohe, who was the architect and designer of this amazing complex. And I'll never forget, you know, he almost started tearing up. And I'll never forget his commentary on when they were deciding the color of what the TD Centre would be. Now, don't forget, this is like the late 60s. sleepy town Toronto, a very conservative city. And if you look back, the articles that talked about the TD Centre, they talked about the black coffins, they talked about... It was very avant-garde for this city. And so Mies looked at the group that was around him, and, and he just looked up and he said, you know, it's going to be black. Black is the noblest of colours. And so that tradition of, you know, the design and what that particular complex meant to this city really resonated with me with respect to city building, with respect to community housing, with respect to iconic legacies and how those legacies make an impact, not only on the economics and, you know, it's turned over how many times and certainly has been a wonderful, wonderful asset for Cadillac that continue to produce as a result and great value. but. It also houses some of the most impressive organizations in our country. And it also houses people that have to do that. And I watched it morph over the years. So think about it, you know, these five iconic buildings, but the insides continually morph. And as you look at various tenants and what they want to do and how they want to organize and how people produce and the projects that are done within it, it's just a testament. After that, I went into, I moved over to Oxford and spent some time on the development side Only there for a couple of years, and uh, then was headhunted to Ontario Realty Corp and worked on their asset management. And as we were looking at public sector real estate, you know, I keep going back to Fantasy Fair, it was kind of a brand new experience. There wasn't really a playbook on truly public sector real estate proper. So we created with the Realty Corporation, we've really spent a fair bit of time creating. The real estate practices that are needed to grow an entity, to grow real estate, and use it in its best form. Right? What is the way to make sure that real estate is actually leveraged, value enhanced, brought to fruition? And I happened to be on the executive team that uh, helped merge Ontario Realty Corporation with yeah, I was Infrastructure Ontario. Yeah, about that. What that, what, that yeah. what that process was like. So what what that, year was that? And uh, so that was in 2011. And that was a, you know, it was a good process. Like when you think about, again, I I actually think it was a bit ahead of its time because when you think about the integration of infrastructure Mm -hmm. or just building and capital deployment with the fundamentals of real estate and the ongoing use of that real estate and that building and the ongoing operations and the sustainability, you know, back to TD Center has been there since the 60s. Well, why? Because it was actually built in a way that it was going to sustain and operated in that same pattern. So, we spent, from an ORC perspective, we spent a lot of time with individuals at IO from a true project piece. And, you know, it was a, it's a P3. The IO at the time was still, and today still, we we were the ones that uh, started doing a different financing model, frankly, to be able to address the capital needs of the province. And the main capital needs at that time were, was healthcare. So really revamp the hospitals and get the hospitals back to a new one there was so much infrastructure that was debilitated and how do we actually do that without having the money to do it Mm -hmm. so the province may be capital rich but they still needed that capital injection but they are very much ongoing operational cash flow you've got to sustain it so the p3 model the afp financing model that was developed at infrastructure at the time is really kind of the model you know there was a uk model that was it was leveraged on but it's really now been the model that is globally recognized and utilized to be able to deploy capital by bringing consortiums together. Can you elaborate on just what that is
1: and how that works, how that functions?
0: So we would, if there is a need for any particular infrastructure, I'll go back to healthcare as an example, or courthouses or jails and we can talk about transit in a minute because that's a whole a whole other linear and and my colleagues at uh, IO you know are, are scratching their heads a, a lot in just ensuring that we find the same mechanisms that we did with healthcare for linear because although it's infrastructure they're a little bit different you know in sure. the ground is different than than billing but in essence it's bringing equity partners together you know the fan gates of the world and the light like, the plenaries of the world with the constructors the PCLs the Ellis Dawns, and the like with the ongoing operator for a 30-year concession and creating the financing upfront that you can get the building built, getting it to a substantial completion, paying out your equity partners, and then you have ongoing uh, availability payments on a monthly basis for 30 years. So that's kind of revolutionary because the rest of the portfolio, from a government perspective, still needs infrastructure, once it's built, still needs to be on, uh, maintained on an ongoing yeah, there's basis. Always, there's, there's always capital, capital, capital that has to be deployed. Needed, yeah. and, and the one things government are good at is, in fact, deploying first capital. What they're less good at, because their mandates change every four years, is prioritizing and ensuring that the ongoing operations and the maintenance is there for any one of those buildings. So we're not alone. Our province and uh, across the country, most public sector portfolios are starved for ongoing operating dollars. So the P3 model is one way to ensure that that asset gets put back into its life cycle use after you know, the 30-year sure. concession in a very good shape and form. Whereas after 30 years of prioritizing operating dollars that may or may not go there, it's not in the same Lifecycle form as it would be with our P3s.
1: So now let's create some context for our listeners. You're under Infrastructure Ontario or with your role at Infrastructure Ontario. First, that's the whole province, right? So yeah. we're, we're, gonna, we're not going to focus only on Toronto as, as much as we like to. But what are the asset classes or what is the real estate that falls Absolutely. under? I mean, you've mentioned, you mentioned jails and, and courthouses and hospitals. Like, What else is there that kind of falls under your jurisdiction?
0: Great question. So from a provincial perspective, you know, funnily, one would think that the Premier of Ontario or the Prime Minister of Canada would know in a minute exactly what they owned and could get that data and information like that. Well, it's been a number of years of us trying to collect it. And the reason is because it's been fragmented across, you know, the the real estate entities have been created, hospital boards, school boards, various asset classes have actually had their own authority and funding ability to, to do real estate. So, from an asset class perspective, one of the things that we've now established is exactly how much real estate is in the province of Ontario. Almost 600 million square feet. We've got almost 4 million acres of land. And the asset classes include office, traditional office, because we've got 60, 70,000 office workers, knowledge workers that need to reside somewhere.
1: And you own those buildings. And we
0: either own or lease them. Right. And we are, so the office asset class. And similar to most landlords, and tenants of office space, we're constantly looking at ways to optimize and utilize that mm-hmm. office space. There's courthouses. So right. across the province, you know. Is uh, it every the, courthouse or
1: it, is, it, is it some it, courthouses are owned by the municipalities? Some,
0: so yes, so some courthouses are municipal. Some courthouses are federal. Some courthouses are provincial. Right. So that's a whole other conversation. Well, courthouses
1: can be tenants too. Like I've seen courthouses sure as can. just office space in an office building. They
0: sure can. And so, so you would be the
1: tenant. You would we manage would be that the tenant yeah. that we
0: would be managing the lease for that particular for the ministry, the Ministry of the Attorney General. But we would also be the landlord and the builder of that asset. So we could either build it, landlord it over time, or tenant it depending on the complex. Yeah. So we also have laboratories, we've got medical centers, we have jails mm-hmm. uh, and detention centers, OPP stations. You know, from a provincial lens setting, the amount of asset classes that are in the provincial portfolio,
1: portfolio yeah.
0: There's retail, but not the retail in the same sense of you know like a loblaws or what they would be doing. But there is public-facing space. Service Ontario, by way of example, and where Service Ontario resides, and so that's full-on retail space, and it's across the province in shopping malls, you know, en route across all the 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 401 and the 400 series. Those are public-facing service centers for travel. And, and those are owned and, and operated are by owned Infrastructure and operated Ontario. And are operated by, at this stage, some are the consortiums that I talked about, the right. P3s, but essentially owned and operated. With major brand our, name
1: tenants. Yeah, the yeah, the yeah. Yeah. Real yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, high traffic.
0: Yeah. So the other asset classes that we spend a fair bit of time on is the hospital asset class. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and mostly from a P3 perspective, building state experts set of capital and they will deploy their own that seems university. In, that seems inefficient you to me. You got it, my friend. <laughs> so one of the back to, you know, my the early days of Fantasy Fair. <laughs> yeah. Why is the one person at bumper boats for eight hours when in fact they should in fact be find a ways to be? Yeah. So this is where, you know, I've spent a fair bit of my time over the last number of years at Infrastructure Ontario, A, understanding the inventory. So the mm-hmm. supply side, understanding what do we actually have? B, then understanding the demand side. What is really needed? You know, we're now looking a lot at our demographics and most of it is based on what the government of the day and their mandate of the day. So IO, it's a bit of a confluence when you think about it. Governments are in place for four years, sometimes two. Various governments have various mandates. When you think about real estate and infrastructure, that's not a four or two year mandate. That's a 50 year mandate, right? And longer. So You know, finding ways to align and deploy the projects that the government of the day needs and wants. We've been very lucky over the last little bit that uh, most of the mandates have been consistent. So affordable housing is a very important mandate, not just for the province of Ontario, but arguably the city of Toronto and the feds. Long-term care. Our demographics are aging. So what's happening with the long-term care models transit and transit-oriented development is becoming more and more and more paramount in the work that we are doing. And all of those are key government mandates, economic development, smart deployment of capital. How do you procure it so that it's consistent and efficient? How do we leverage our current real estate? So now, you know, the industry has grown up. The industry has become quite a profession. And I think the public sector real estate is still in its, not infancy, but it's still in its opportunity world of being opened up because it's now starting to become, quote unquote, more professionalized because it is an industry versus in many of our public sector jurisdictions, we have fragmented real estate experts that will move around and mm-hmm. our policymakers move usually, around, yeah. right? Most real estate experts want to stay in the real estate industry. They'll yeah. work for large landlords. So, for I.O., we kind of create the bridge between the public sector and the private sector by taking public sector needs, policies, desires, and deploying them, capital, and marrying them with private sector expertise in mind.
1: How long have you had your current role as president?
0: So, three years. Three so, years. So, so and, still, on the, and it sounds like you're still kind of in the <laughs> information-taking in well, stage. Well, I mean, so. we're, 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 let me step back now and talk a little bit about Infrastructure Ontario. Sure. It's a crown corporation. We do three things really effectively and well. We start with the need in mind. So we actually create commercial solutions by doing transaction structuring, by working together with the private sector and the public sector. If there's a problem that the government needs to solve, what are we going to do with Ontario Place? Now that kind of a commercial solution where we might go out and solicit proposals from the public or put out an RFP, but the thinking behind it, what, what's the real policy of you know long-term care? What's the policy thinking that's there and, and what's the business case? So we'll create that as a solution and advice. We execute on transactions, which is arguably the P3 model for sure, but it's beyond P3s. Like When you think about it, there's about 30 P3s in current operation. It's about almost $14 billion worth of assets under management. We've got another $65 billion in pipeline of all different kinds of assets. Just the subway project alone is another 28 and a half, billion dollars that is going to be deployed over the next 10 years. So there's that translates the un- to about, that the Ontario, the line? Ontario yeah. line. So that translates to about 80 or so big type of those P3 projects where we're using consortiums. We're actually going out to the marketplace right. and bringing those players together. Over and above that in the portfolio today that we manage, there's another 4 5 6,000 projects on a capital repair perspective that are going on all the time. So how do they get deployed? And that's just IO's management. On top of that, the Ministry of Transportation, other ministries have their projects that they're going mm-hmm. up. So the fragmentation of what I call the smaller crown or traditional projects is an opportunity. And sure. it's an opportunity for deploying the right capital in the right way, prioritizing it in the right way, and putting it out. The other projects that occur in the other partnerships that we do is just on the ongoing management of our assets. One of the things that IO does quite well is work with the marketplace. Mm -hmm. We engage with the private sector. We don't want to reinvent the wheel. How do you integrate what's there and how do we take what the private sector does really well and marry it to the public sector mandate or need? So we'll go out to the market all the time, do market soundings on, we need, Mm -hmm. you know, new long-term care. Fantastic. How do we actually deploy a new long-term care? We need new affordable housing. Well, we'll do a sounding that says the policy suggests that we need 30% rent geared to income in this particular site. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: We have a piece of land. Best and highest use is not affordable housing. It's probably condo building. Is there any private sector developer, joint venture consortium that might want to come together where we could vend in the land or utilize that land portion for value to meet the need of the affordable housing mandate if that developer, in fact, delivers then those Know, yeah, six, seven, eight hundred yeah, units. I mean, and we did a project like, and I, I'm being very specific because that was our commercial solutions portion where we came up with the business cases of, of trying to deploy that in four or five different ways in the marketplace. And then we actually started to execute that transaction. So we put an RFP out in the marketplace and who was available. And now, in some cases, we'll then be managing that asset for the long term. So let me go back for a second. So I owe then our three main bullets is managing our assets, executing our transactions, and developing those commercial solutions for government. But we can't do it without the partnerships with the private sector. And we can't do it without finding a way to understand the mandate of the client and the citizens of Ontario and the government. So what does that mean now? So from a real estate perspective, I often think about real estate being both a catalyst of change and because, and here's a great example, I'll use McDonald block which if you're in Toronto you'll know the building's just at the corner of Bay and Wellesley. You know they're almost 50 years old. The TD Center same kind of vintage had already turned over in its capital three or four times, right? Elevators were updated, building envelopes were done, tenants were rechanged, things were fantastic. McDonald block, no way. So we have this old clunker that is a, could be of a risk. And the deferred maintenance and the deferred capital in that old clunker was starting to outweigh the amount of money that you're putting bad money into a building. That catalyst allowed us to then start to proactively now change how we're going to use that real estate in a much more efficient and optimized value. So we can be the catalyst because it's an infrastructure gone bad and yeah. you now have to, in fact, deploy capital and money to recreate it. or And we can be the front end where, you know what, there's a green piece of land over here. How are we actually going to revitalize that? And I'll I'll look at the West Onlands as a really good example. 72-acre site in the middle of downtown Toronto, arguably one of the most, you know, now one of the most expensive pieces of real estate that you can find. 11 years ago, it wasn't. It was uh, It was an industrial wasteland. It needed environmental remediation. It needed monies to be put into it. It needed partnerships to come and play. And so by being proactive and starting to look at and redevelop that site in advance and bringing the partners to do it, then you're now becoming a commercial solution. You're starting to be proactively lit, thinking like a developer, thinking like a good real estate mogul, thinking like a mind, not in reaction catalyst mode, which is where most public sector governments find themselves. Right. So IO, the other piece that we do, which many don't know, is we're essentially a bank for the lending of infrastructure funds. So most of our clients are municipalities. We have about $10 billion that we've deployed out over the last 10 years or so. Our, our loan book is still have outstanding loans, about $6 billion. Can any and private groups borrow? Private groups cannot. So okay. I was just about ready to say that. So, but it fills a niche that the capital markets don't fill right now. So it's municipalities, it's not-for-profits, it's uh, electric companies, municipal services companies, and it's service uh, providers for affordable housing and long-term care. So that type of grouping, I think, is really critical and important. And the niche that IO plays for those loans is critical and important because we work with the OFA, we get the same, we get the Ontario rate, and it's a long-term but it does then deploy capital for infrastructure in the right way, so then the real estate industry and the developers can, in fact, find a way to, participate. Know, to participate in and around that capture. Which brings us to transit. I mean, the work that we're doing with MetroLink's in partnership with MetroLink's, and even even the partnership that IO and MetroLink's now have developed and created, and it wasn't around a year and a half, two years ago. So we've in essence taken the known entity of Metrolinx, which is an operator of the GO system in the GTHA, the known entity of TTC, which is the operator of transit just in Toronto, and tried to find a way to integrate transit amongst all of those entities. You've got Viva and, you know, in, in, in York, you've got all kinds of different touch points, but there's never been an integrator of that transit system to be able to deliver that transit in a much more effective way. And most people are frustrated as all heck, and have been, because government has not been able to find a way to actually do that. It's a complicated system, so I'm not here to say that it, it's
1: easy. It's not a simple It's solution. not a
0: simple solution, but it started with getting the partnerships amongst the agencies, amongst the government agencies first to understand what are you planning? Where are you planning it? Why are you planning? And then putting a plan together that will allow, developers and others to, to participate. So it's not just transit-oriented development. That's going to happen all the time. It Actually has to be transit-integrated development. And in some cases, we have to just build it. You know, so you kind of lose your leverage with a developer when you're already building a, and, and announcing a, a, a go station or a subway station. But what you capture, though, is an opportunity to be ahead of that and work with the developer prior to deciding where that location is going to be. So from a transit-oriented development perspective, we've been spending a fair bit of time with Metrolinx and now with the marketplace and IO expertise and Metrolinx expertise in combination with private sector expertise and developers. We're going to be able to build this line, Ontario line number one, but also Metrolinx can continue building their network, which has been known. They know the growth that is needed for the next 30, 40 years. They know where the line needs to go. We just haven't been able to organize ourselves to deploy and get that capital going. So, the urgency of doing something right now is more ne- critical than ever. Higher. It's never been higher. The, the capital is there. The governments are all behind it. So, the political will at all levels of government and has of never what, been higher. Regardless
1: of what color your tie is. You got it. Yeah. So, that's
0: never been higher. And the development community and the real estate community, their desire to participate somehow has never been higher. So you've got three, those three forces slowly starting to come into play. But I would argue that those three forces are slowly starting to come into play. Why? Because we've actually, again, I hate using the word professionalize the real estate industry, but from a public sector perspective, we've actually started to put the commercial transactions, de-risked the marketplace so that the private sector would and wants to get involved, and then truly started to understand who's going to take on that risk tolerance. What is your risk tolerance and who's truly more capable to take on that risk? Who's going to take on the risk of underground utility delays? The private sector, when they're coming into a consortium, they're going to add that to their schedule. They're going to add that as risk. They're going to add that to cost. Does, can government do that better? Right? So, so IO, Metrolinks together with private sector, we're now working through all those intimate details and getting rid of the barriers finding a way to do it more efficiently, getting a transaction in play that can then get the line done. And that is kind of tactical on the transit. The output or the outcome of that is, you know, you're going you're gonna to be able to capture land value over time. So all the developers along that line and arguably within that two, three, four kilometers around whatever that transit line in is big. I went back to the West Island as a really good example, you know, of kind of proactive, but then also never let a big crisis go to waste or never let a magic moment go to waste. You know, the Pan Am games were announced to be in Toronto. So the urgency to get that development done just got twofold, similar to transit. There's urgency now to get it done. And so what that did was it, it ensured that we were able to get rid of some of the barriers. We got our motivations, environmental motivations Motivation is all yeah. aligned. Yeah. And you know, when you're talking about developments, when you're talking about real estate, and when you're talking about the, the confluence with public sector, you got to align all three of those or it's not going to happen.
1: And do you worry about time running out and the stars coming out of alignment?
0: Yes. Uh, I think part of our role is to ensure that time doesn't run out. To put the structure and the contracts get the, and, get, and the the, get the transactions get together the yeah, in so, such a way That makes sense. That makes business sense so that it's...
1: And if there's a change of of tie color, there's nothing they can do because it's all locked and loaded. It's not even
0: that it's nothing they can do, but they'll actually want to do it because it makes good business sense. It is aligned with what the citizens need and want. And so we've spent a lot of time prioritizing and ensuring that the alignment not just is there for today, but it makes the most economic sense, similar to what a real estate or an infrastructure mind would do, right? If it didn't make sense to build the line, it wouldn't matter if all three governments were aligned to do it. It doesn't make economics, it doesn't make sense. So that, I think IO and our partners spend a fair bit of our energy, not just aligning political will, but putting that political will to a commercial transaction. Sure.
1: Are there particular projects that are getting you the most excited right now? I mean, you mentioned Ontario Place. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners saying, yeah, what the heck's going on down Where's there? Where's the casino? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course, the Ontario line, that the, the relief line, if you will, that everybody said has been needed since the 1970s. You know, it's only been 40 years we've been talking about it. Yeah. Is there anything else? Or maybe you so talk about got, those two if you want well, to. Yeah, and we've
0: got, I mean, we've got a new Toronto courthouse that's coming in play. We've got Mackenzie Vaughn Hospital that's uh, coming into play. I, I, I talk a little bit about McDonald Block. I'm actually very excited about that one, and I know it's tactical and it's a very simple project, but it's 1.2 million square feet of office in downtown Toronto, where we will be again revitalizing that whole corner of Bay and Wellesley to be able to bring back kind of the the tenant and that office worker. Find it. I find it very interesting the future of office work. Right when you think about most of the of the talent can work from anywhere how they want with the technology that's in place. You know, here we are going out and doing a a P3. So McDonald Block is the first time we've actually deployed a a true P3 model, meaning we, we brought together the equity partners, we brought together the constructors and the ongoing operator in an office model. Normally, that has not been the case. It's always either been a hospital or a jail. Why? Because a hospital and a jail now, it's going to stay in public ownership all the time, but an office building is a commodity. Yeah, you know, well, there's cash you can, flow. Yeah, there's, there's cash, I mean, there's flow, cash there. flow there, and you yeah. can you can in fact, and you can buy it through a lease anytime you want. So that was the first time that we actually did commercial transaction that was related to that asset class. What's kind of exciting for me is looking at what's the next asset class that we can look at. You know, we're starting to look a little bit at laboratories. So you know, back to defragmentation of of a particular line of business. Now, we've got many different kinds of labs located all over the place uh, that are not necessarily doing or are doing very comparable things. And maybe 20% of what they're doing is, is not the same. So water testing, is it regulatory? Is it ongoing pathology? Is it, what is it? And can it be done in a facility or two or not? And so who are the partners that would want to be in the laboratory business? So putting together the business case of who do we bring to the table? Long-term care is another one that I think is really quite exciting. And we're just at the precipice of that. You know, the, the, the actual funding model for long-term care deployers is wrong. So the, the actual model itself per bed is outdated. And so the, you'll never have a good long-term care system if you don't actually address the outdated funding model and that business case. So putting the business case together for government that helps them look at different kinds of deployment and then working with the private sector Oh, yeah. You well, know, look, there's all kinds of land all over. We have land in schools and hospitals and all the rest. So even unlocking that, but I would argue and say, you know, the Rivera's of the world. like,
1: We're the largest senior housing financing company in the country. And all of our major landlords in that space would love to participate in that long-term care. And we, to be quite honest, I mean, we've been working very hard, First National, to lobby CMHC and get them back on board because I... You know that's one of those spaces where you don't even need to be involved. The private sector will take care of that space as long as the financing is there for them. Correct, and there's there's lots of ways that you can.
0: And maybe even leveraging some of those lands. Like, is there when we did the long-term care and the affordable housing mandate, we looked at affordable housing in four different ways. One, we could take a piece of land that we already had and sell it outright, and then just you know put in the deal that you have to put this structure. Two, we could. Um, do a long a long land lease, mm-hmm. right? With a with a developer who will go out and build highest uh, and best, build great condos and make twenty or thirty percent of that affordable. Uh, so rent geared to income and a service provider uh, or service manager running that. Three, we could actually go out and build the community ourselves. We could master plan a whole area for affordable home ownership. You know, an entire mixed use development. Or four, we could do some land swaps, and the land swaps could be. Certainly with the municipalities, but why maybe not with the private sector? Like there might be a different, you know, if we can, we'll look at the various values of land in the Delta.
1: So, I mean, all all this sounds wonderful. And it's kind of I'm sure everyone's listening saying this is very comforting to know that there's somebody at the helm of this stuff that has sort of the background that is thinking about these things in sort of a pragmatic sense. What keeps you up at night though? What are you worried about most? Like what is the thing that it's kind of the hardest thing that you're still arm wrestling with that you're not sure how to solve?
0: Yeah, I would say scale is really the, the key thing that is keeping us upscale. The ability to, in fact, get the right talent to deliver on mega mandates. And I would say the integration now of the various forms of technology. So, I mean, I'm, you know, we're talking about our ability to now deploy things easily. I mean, building use is a building use. But we've got so much new, both technology, the way things are being run and done, how do you integrate those into either legacy systems? Do you rip out what you currently have, which is not economic, <laughs> especially in infrastructure? We've got aging infrastructure that just does not have the right ongoing funding for it. So to me, that, what, that's what keeps me up at night the most is the ability to get the funding that is going to be needed for our infrastructure in a prioritized way. And then, in fact, get the right leaders and the right structure to be able to deploy it. And the right people. We're in. Are you having a hard
1: time attracting attracting talent? Just given the nature and working in government versus, you know, I'd rather work at Cadillac Fairview than work at at Infrastructure Ontario. How do you first national or first national? national. Yeah, yeah. why? You know, clearly this was an
0: interview for both of you guys. So I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to be leaving your your current role. I would say yeah. I, I would say the real estate industry just in general. I think we attract a certain grouping of people, but are they are they the group that is going to be needed in the next three, four, five, seven, ten years? The trades, like frankly, not that it's our people that we are hiring. We don't hire project trades, we're not in the construction business per se, but we actually hire all those organizations that hire that. And I think we're in a real dilemma of just skilled trades today. And, the missing and the, middle. And the missing middle is really, it, it's real. I also think it's important from a leadership perspective, you know, how do you train up individuals quickly? So in our context, so that they don't get frustrated because, you know, you guys have articulated it all already. The mandate is huge. The complexity is quite there. It's not all that you know, sexy, truly, when you're thinking about that we're not going to be able to, you're not going to get any stock options when you're coming to IO. But I think what we have found is individuals love to see the outcome of their work. They love to see the purpose of why they're doing something. It is really a very cool thing to say and not easily found to say that you have worked on a project that is a hospital. That is going to be saving lives constantly. You've worked on a project that is going to be moving people. No, when you've worked on an office building or you've you've built a shopping center or you know a, a Loblaw's or a, or a Walmart, it, it tends to be the same. I would say we the type of people that we attract, and we've been quite lucky. It's not for money, obviously, that they're coming over to IO, not for stock options, but it is for outcome and it is for clarity of purpose. And I I do think that there's more and more individuals today that love to use their private sector mind, their entrepreneurship, their ability to create good business cases for public sector good and deploy it fast, right? I mean, I think there's also a lot of... And don't get me wrong, we we actually, our client is, our client is the government of Ontario. We, We certainly aren't politicians and we certainly aren't bureaucrats or OPS workers, but we do respect the work that is done and the need for that public infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you go. It doesn't matter where you go. You're going to have to interface with something that is of the public. And we love and respect the expertise and the intelligence and the drive of the private sector. And finding a way, we we've become a bit of a bridge to find the way to marry those two strengths. In a de-risked fashion, it's not easy. No, um, it does keep us up at night. Uh, I would say today, you know, our executive team. Just yesterday, we're really wrestling with how do we ensure that none of the balls fall. What's the technology that's coming up that we're not going to be able to buy or deploy it? But who and who do we go out to to partner with to do this? How do we find the right risks and transfer them appropriately? How do we ensure that we've got government policymakers, you know, thinking in the right way so that the private sector can, in fact, help yeah, right? and, like, wants, to and help. wants to help? And so that's kind of what's keeping us up. And then where are we going to get the talent and to execute, uh, to, to execute on it? And, yeah.
1: and we talked a lot about, obviously, you know, your views in real estate and managing this, this huge beast of Infrastructure Ontario, but you're also a leader in, within your organization. What vision do you see for Infrastructure Ontario in terms of your leadership?
0: It's a good question because I think at the end of the day, the only way you can get anything done is through people. And so engaging in the right culture and ensuring that occurs. And, you know, it's funny because the worst thing that can happen to a parent is their kid who has now gone through business school and understands all of the all of the business management uh, books and comes to you and says, hey... You know, you're a leader of an organization. What are your success traits? Tony's daughter is sitting right (laughs) here with us
1: also. And so so
0: I've got my daughter, Kenzie, just looking at me. But she actually did this a few years ago and said, I've got this assignment. What's leadership? And I thought about it a lot because you do get asked a fair bit. So I kind of tried to simplify it. And I came up with the ABCs of successful leaders, which I'm not going to be writing a book. It's not trademark. Go and take it. But the A's for me and how I think that it's important to lead you start with authentic action. You go to your B's, which is boundless belief. I think you've heard me earlier, like you got to believe in something and you got to just have it in play. And then your C's is, there's got to be courage in your curiosity because the questions are hard and there's always trade-offs that, that occur and, and you have to have the courage to be able to do it. And I'm a huge Da Vincian. So then that brings us to the D's, which is Da Vincian doing one of my favorite Da Vinci quotes, talks about the urgency of doing. And he says, you know, he's been impressed with the urgency of doing. Being willing is not enough. You have to act. Knowing is not enough. You must apply. So, Da Vinci in doing then brings you to your final ease, which is excellence in execution every day. So, there's my leadership success stories. And, and, you, know, you should at the, have end of the, the day, wall. I'm sure you have it on the wall. <laughs> I don't, to, but I'm going to have <laughs> <laughs> to. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: I think at the end of the day, you cannot... You cannot, you cannot inspire people. You cannot keep people, you know, who was it, Malcolm Gladwell, I think, you know, he he said people don't leave companies. They actually leave their leaders. And so, you know, we tend to always think about servicing of others and treat somebody like you want to be treated. No, that's not leadership. In fact, you need to treat somebody like they want to be treated. And so leadership means you've got to get to know them, got to know what they want, how they want to feel and then be in service to them.
1: Tony, we want to thank you for coming on the show today, being so generous with your time. This was uh, super interesting, and I believe you're the first guest we've ever had on from the government perspective. So that's been uh, a real shift from our usual. It's been it's been yeah, nice. Yeah, it's been great. That was really, 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 really good. Thank
0: Good. Me. Well, yeah. I'm glad you. I, I thought I would take a little bit off of cap rates are compressing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Our rents are going up. But we got it. Yeah, we got Next it. episode, so, right back to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we want to thank First National for powering the podcast. We want to thank uh, the Forum for hosting us here today and. Introducing us to people like Tony. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. You're welcome.
0: Thanks. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.